I'm Connor Reed with words to that effect. Stories of the fiction that shapes popular culture. In the summer of 1888 in the Lyceum Theatre in London, a stage adaptation appeared of the celebrated strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Just two years after the publication of Robert Louis Stevenson's best-selling novella, the actor Richard Mansfield had been quick to realise the potential of a theatre adaptation and of a single actor playing the shocking double persona on stage. His transformation from the respectable Dr. Jekyll to the depraved Mr. Hyde was, for contemporary audiences, breathtaking to behold. With a combination of judicious lighting and makeup, and mostly really just Mansfield's great acting skills, Jekyll was altered entirely in front of audience members' eyes. A few days after the performance began, the first in a series of gruesome murders took place across town in Whitechapel in East London. As the murders were linked together by police and an increasingly fascinated media and public, the hunt began for the Whitechapel murderer, or Jack the Ripper, as he came to be known. Numerous suspects and theories were put forward, and it was frequently suggested that the murderer was a professional, perhaps a doctor, and someone who was hiding in plain sight, living a double life. One suspect was actually Richard Mansfield. After all, here was a man who could present himself as an upstanding professional doctor before transforming into an almost unrecognisable murderer. Now, Mansfield was never really a strongly considered suspect, but you can imagine any implication of being the most notorious and depraved murderer of the age is not something anyone would really welcome. And so already, the story of Jekyll and Hyde was taking on its own pop culture associations, its own simplifications, retellings, and alterations. And in fact, the stage play was quite different from the original novella, including the significant addition of A Fiancé for Jekyll, an addition which would then be carried over into other stage and screen versions. Stevenson's novella was taking on its own double life, increasingly removed from the original tale. And I think it's fair to say that for most people today, the story has been reduced to a fairly straightforward allegory of the potential dark side within us all. But if you read Stevenson's original tale, a short 80-odd page novella, you immediately realise that there is so much to this masterpiece of 19th century fiction, and there are so many reasons the story has become embedded in popular culture. I mean, it has everything. Dreams and reality, psychology and medicine, good and evil, degeneracy and criminality, sexuality and self-identity, blackmail, murder, addiction, religion. Am I missing anything? Probably. So I made a call to St. Louis, Missouri. Well, my name is Anne Stiles, and I teach English literature and uh, medical humanities at St. Louis University in St. Louis, Missouri. Professor Stiles has published widely in the area of literature and medicine, and her students at St. Louis University include pre-medical students. And as we'll see later, it turns out that there are some very important medical contexts to the story of Jacob and Hyde. So Jekyll and Hyde is one of those popular tales that has largely been disconnected from its source material and from its author. It's a little bit like Frankenstein or Sherlock Holmes or Dracula in that way. Fun fact, the Lyceum Theatre where Richard Mansfield played Jekyll and Hyde was managed by the renowned Victorian actor Henry Irving. His business manager was Ram Stoker. So a decade after Jekyll and Hyde was performed in the theatre, Stoker was writing Dracula there. And just as Dracula has long eclipsed Stoker, Stevenson has been overshadowed by his most famous creation. Now, he's still a well-known author, you know, particularly because of his other novel, Treasure Island, a staple of children's literature. 
and a book which, incidentally, is going to make an appearance later in this season. But Stevenson's literary reputation has fluctuated a lot over the last century. He was really, really successful in his time, both critically and commercially, for his short stories, his poetry, essays, and then novels like Treasure Island, Kidnapped, The Black Arrow, and many others. But then, after his death, and he died at only 44, and with the advent of modernism, his reputation just completely plummeted. And it's only really in recent decades that he's been reconsidered critically and looked at again. His route to becoming a world-renowned author was an unusual one, too. Stevenson was born into a family of prominent Scottish lighthouse engineers, which sounds like a very specific profession, and I guess it was. I mean, that was all they did. They just designed Scottish lighthouses. <laughs> and, um, yeah. so Stevenson was expected to become a lighthouse engineer like his father and his grandfather and his uncles. And um, he, he had some health problems, though. Like from childhood on, he was confined to his bed a lot of the time because he had like breathing problems, lung problems. It's kind of hard to know what, but maybe there was some tuberculosis or something like that. Um, so he was listening to a lot of um, scary stories that his nurse told him. Um, they were very, you know, Calvinist stories, very biblical, good and evil, a lot of devils in hell and stuff like that. So he was imbibing mm-hmm. this really scary material as a child. And then um, growing up, he started out studying engineering, you know, to be a lighthouse engineer like everyone in his family. But it just didn't really take. I mean, I think he was good at it, but he didn't really like it. So then he told his parents, you know, I want to be a lawyer. And he went to law school at the University of Edinburgh. But then he didn't like that either. So then he told his parents, you know, I want to be a novelist. And you can imagine how thrilled they were about that. (laughs) He was really kind of the black sheep of a distinguished lighthouse engineering family, I guess you could say. So the world could have had some, no doubt, very well-designed lighthouses. But instead, we got Jekyll and Hyde. I think he made the right choice. Fittingly, the origins of Jekyll and Hyde itself are in a mixture of nightmare images and frenzied composition. He actually wanted to produce a shilling shocker um, for the Christmas season. Because in the Victorian period, that was Christmas was when you read horror stories to each other. I don't really know why, but ever since A Christmas Carol by Dickens, which was a ghost story of Christmas, there was kind of this Victorian fad for telling ghost stories around Christmas time. A Victorian fad you'll know all about, of course, because you've heard episode 13 on M.R. James. So Stevenson's publisher wanted him to do this. He had to get cracking on some sort of horror story. And he had this dream that sort of like Frankenstein, you know, where Mary Shelley had a dream and that became the origin of Frankenstein. Well, um, Stevenson had a dream about, I think it was about a man drinking a potion and changing into something more horrible, you know, so sort of the central conceit of the tale. And then his wife, Fanny Osborne Stevenson, woke him up because he was like shrieking in his sleep. And he was really mad. And he said, why did you wake me up? I was dreaming up a fine bogey tale. You know, so he set to work writing down as much of it as he could remember and then kind of elaborating on it. And um, I think he wrote the first draft in three days, or at least that's how the story goes. And he read it to his wife. And she was, she was very opinionated. They sometimes wrote together. So she was by no means just a passive participant in his literary career. She was 
sometimes a co-author, sometimes a critic of his writing. She said, well, I don't think you really play up enough the central metaphor of the duality of man. Like you kind of just, you know, it's a good horror story, but you need to play out that central metaphor. So she really understood the importance of the concept of duality to the story. And so Stevenson, I guess, you know, never won for half measures. He just threw the first draft in the fire and then he started over again. And the second version apparently is a lot less explicit about what bad deeds Hyde actually does. Doubles are, of course, everywhere in Jekyll and Hyde. And so it's not surprising that even the story itself has a double, a more lurid version that was never allowed to see the light of day. The height of the final version tramples a girl and murders Sir Danvers Carew, so it's intriguing to think what the original Hyde's terrible deeds were. So the story was published in January 1886, and it was a huge success. It really was kind of just a real great popular success story and kind of a thriller, and people loved it. And it was kind of a a sleeper hit, I guess you could say, because it was supposed to be written for the Christmas season, but then the editor didn't think it was going to do well enough to sell over the Christmas season, so they actually bumped it to January. And this was thought to be like the death knell of the tale. You know, if your book, if, if your horror story was being sold in January instead of at Christmas time, it wasn't going to sell that well. But despite that, it sold 40,000 copies immediately and Queen Victoria read it and immediately like people were making dramatic versions of it, which vastly simplified the moral complications of the story, but which were nonetheless hugely popular. It was also massively popular in the US, partly because it wasn't protected by copyright laws at that time, so people just started knocking off copies as fast as they could. Not great for Stevenson's royalties, but fantastic for the spread of the story. Now, one of the things to remember in all of this is that, for the vast majority of people today, we can't really read the original story as it was meant to be read. You know, everyone already knows that Jekyll is Hyde. I mentioned Dracula earlier, and it's kind of the same thing. If you're reading the book when it's first published, you're kind of in the same position as Jonathan Harker, thinking, you know, oh, a count by the name of Dracula has invited me to his castle. Well, that all sounds fine. Nothing could go wrong there. And with Jekyll and Hyde, the revelation is a shocking twist at the end. The novella is actually a kind of a detective story. It's written mostly from the perspective of Mr. Utterson, who's trying to work out exactly how this mysterious Mr. Hyde is manipulating and controlling Dr. Jekyll. But even though it must have been great to read the original story or see an original stage version where you didn't know the twist, that's not where the true strength of the story lies. The power of Jekyll and Hyde is, as Fanny Stevenson recognised, in the dualities and the numerous possible interpretations. The story itself is quite structurally complicated, with tales within tales and alternative perspectives circling around a central mystery, with two characters who turn out to be an increasingly unstable one. And the story lends itself to all sorts of different readings, some of which were immediately proposed and some of them much, much later. And there is, of course, no definitive answer. And Stevenson was more than happy to let people speculate. His tact was basically to refuse to answer over and over or to say, like, I've heard of that theory, but that's not what I meant. And I think maybe he did, maybe he was being just a little bit coy because he realized that the power of his tale is just sort of the multiplicity of interpretations you can put on it. And the fact that there isn't really just one thing that it necessarily has to mean. 
Does Hyde represent a degeneration to a savage state, a hot topic at that time? He's described on a number of occasions as having hairy hands, being ape-like and being like a monkey. And what about contemporary theories of criminality and the criminal man? Check out episode 11 for more on that one. Another explanation for Hyde's control of Jekyll is blackmail. At a time when homosexuality was illegal, a man's private life could become a dangerous liability. Wives or female love interests are nowhere to be found in the story, unlike later adaptations. And what is Danvers Carew looking for exactly on a back street at night approaching a youthful-looking Hyde? Is it a story about addiction, perhaps? There is that obsession with obtaining the purest drugs to make up the transformative potion. The moment I choose, I can be rid of Mr. Hyde, states the addict-like Jekyll early on in the tale. I'm Edward. I think you know who I am. As much as it loathes me to admit this, I need Connor to continue doing whatever it is he does so that I can continue with my, shall we say, activities. And if he used to continue podcasting, well, I guess he needs your support. Apparently, you can do this on something called Patreon at patreon.com slash WTTE. I don't know, just sign up and you get rewards and bonus episodes and things like that. And I indirectly get your money to spend on, well, that's none of your business. Alternatively, you can see him, me, him, in person, live at the Dublin Podcast Festival this November the 15th. It's a joint show with Carolyn Crampton of the podcast She Done It. And it will, I'm glad to see, be all about murder and crime. Tickets are on Ticketmaster and links are on the website. Finally, I feel I should point out that... Hi, Connor, sorry. Oh, um... Sorry, Hi. man. <laughs> I, thought, I thought Connor was recording. No, he's gone, he's gone. Okay. Um, are, are you a guest or... I'd say he's more of a guest of mine. <laughs> um... Listen, get the... Get out, get out, just get out. I'm recording for get out. Finishing this. No, 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 no wait, 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 wait. And then there are all the dualities. The story is set in London, but a London which kind of looks and feels like Edinburgh. There's a house which fronts onto a well-to-do square, but backs onto a far more disreputable area. And most centrally, there's the duality within. Most of us are pretty familiar with what has been called dual or multiple personality disorder, and what is now classed as a dissociative identity disorder. When Stevenson was publishing his Strange Case, and it structured very much as a case, like something you might find in a medical journal, a number of new theories around dual personalities had just emerged. Both in scientific journals at the time and even in popular journals at the time, you were seeing a lot of accounts of what they called dual personality. And this was kind of the forerunner of multiple personality disorder, which is now called dissociative identity disorder. And dual personalities stipulated that basically, you know, each of us has two brain hemispheres and each hemisphere is capable of developing a separate personality. And when that becomes a problem is when you have unbalanced hemispheres, like when one hemisphere gets bigger than the other. And um, basically they thought it was a problem of brain hemisphere imbalance. And so there were some famous cases that were being discussed in the same periodicals that Stevenson was writing for in the 1870s and 1880s, like the Cornhill Magazine in particular had some articles in it um, about these patients called uh, Felita X was one of them. 
and Sergeant F was another. And they were both patients who were who had dual personalities. Even though some of them, I think Felita exhibited up to five different personalities, but because the clinical model was just the dual personalities, the, the doctors treating her only recognized two. And her personalities kind of resemble Jekyll's in a way, or Jekyll's and Hyde's, because her, her first personality was really docile and religious and boring and kind of got depressed a lot. Like a good person, very moral, but not very interesting. And then her mm. second personality was much more mischievous, much much more, um, you know, she misbehaved a lot. And she even actually got pregnant when she was in her second condition, her second personality. But then she didn't remember when she was in her first personality that she had slept with this man. So she told him off and like, I guess she got engaged to him while she was uh, in her second personality state. And then she switched back and then she said, I don't know you, you know, get out of my face <laughs> I just feel sorry for this guy because he did end up marrying her in her whole life she would go back and forth between these two personalities one of whom refused to acknowledge him and the other one was in love with him so <laughs> you can imagine what a complicated life this, this man must have had but I mean she was a very ill woman she would sometimes bleed from the nose and mouth for no reason I guess she was technically classified as a hysteric as well as a person with dual personalities there was also another famous case in France just after Stevenson had written Jekyll and Hyde so probably too late to influence him, but this was the first case of multiple personalities, a diagnosis that exists today as dissociative identity disorder. Although I should point out that it is an extremely controversial topic among psychiatrists, many of whom don't recognize it as a diagnosable condition at all. In 1885, though, this was all just emerging. Um, this was a man called uh, Louis Vivet, and he was a Frenchman who had a lot of mental problems and a lot of different personality states, although some of them would only emerge when doctors um, uh, applied different magnets and things to his body, which I don't know why they did that, but they thought that, you know, they could elicit these different personality states by applying magnets to him. So this was the first case of multiple personality, and um, they... Yeah, this was the first time people had ever thought really beyond dual personality. And I think he was a bit of a medical mystery because you couldn't just attribute each personality to a brain hemisphere. You had to start thinking about other potential causes for the disease. And um, this was the case that uh, Frederick W.H. Myers, the psychical researcher, actually wrote to Stevenson about right after Jekyll and Hyde came out and he said, were you talking about Louis Vivet? Like, is this what the story is about? And Stevenson, as usual, said, I, I've heard of Louis Vivet, but that was not what I was writing about. So it seems very likely that Stevenson was influenced, among many other things, by contemporary medical research in psychiatry. And so Jekyll and Hyde becomes the first in a long line of stories using dual or multiple personalities for all sorts of fictional reasons, from Psycho to Fight Club to M. Night Shyamalan's recent split, not to mention the hundreds of remakes of the Jekyll and Hyde story itself. Well, yeah, I actually like to show students the 1920 silent film adaptation with John Barrymore um, as Jekyll slash Hyde. It's a very good movie, actually, which kind of is surprising given that they didn't have the use of, you know, I mean, they didn't, there's music, but there's no talking. But they're able to get a lot across just through the images and um, 
uh, John Barrymore is an amazing actor. Like for the first two thirds of the transformation scenes where he's changing from Jekyll into Hyde or vice versa, they didn't even use any makeup on him. It's just him flailing around and kind of convulsing. And, you know, he does a very good job of that. It's also interesting because they didn't have a rating system at this time. This was all pre-code. So um, the, re the reviewers had to take it into their own hands to say, like, if you're a nervous person or a pregnant woman or a child, you should not see this movie. And that had the effect, of course, of making everyone want to see the movie and, like, storm the theaters on the day it opened. Because <laughs> they were just like, oh, if you say it's going to give me a heart attack, then I'm going to go watch it. <laughs> And so, just as the various characters in Stevenson's story fail to recognize that there's far more to the unassuming Dr. Jekyll, we too need to look beyond the overly simplified versions of the story. Robert Louis Stevenson's masterpiece is an endlessly fascinating, terrifying, and brilliantly written tale of the dualities in the world all around us. That's it, episode 35 and the beginning of season 4. It's great to be back. Thank you for bearing with me during the break. I've got lots of new episodes lined up for the coming months, so stick around and subscribe if you haven't already. And in other news, you can come and see the show live in a collaboration with the podcast She Done It. We've got live shows at the Dublin Podcast Festival on November 15th, and then in Birmingham at Pod UK next February. The upcoming show is in Dublin's brand new venue, the Podcast Studios, and tickets are an outrageously reasonable 15 euro. So have a look on the website, wttepodcast.com, for all the links to that, or just type Dublin Podcast Festival and you should find it. A huge thank you to my guest this week, Professor Anne Stiles. She has written lots of great stuff about brain science and 19th century literature, and I have put links to her work on the website too. Don't forget, you can support the show on Patreon. And thank you, as always, to all of my current patrons. Jarlath and Frederick and Richard and Carol and Ruth and Maureen and Emma and Bernadette and Meg and Harry and Dixon and John and Tim. I hope you enjoyed the bonus episode and there will be more of these. You too can have a listen to that lovely bonus episode and become a member if you head to patreon.com slash WTTE. Music this week came from the wonderful Philip Coleman and the fantastic Paddy Mulcahy. There are links to their music on the WTTE website as well. And I think that's pretty much it. You can follow the show on Facebook and Instagram, and I'm on Twitter at CEDREID, C-E-D-R-E-I-D. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you in two weeks. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network.